That's good stuff. Thank you so much, Jack, uh, for sharing your story and how God has been at work in your life, even when you don't see it. He's working. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. Well, uh, we're going to continue in uh, that thought, uh, but before we go further, I I might say, uh, how about those ducks? (laughs) All right, not so much. How about... How how about those Vikings, all right? Just in case you were asleep yesterday, we are the 3A state football champions, Uh, and not to mention uh, cross-country boys and girls state champions, that was a few weeks back, but uh, not a bad year to be a Viking. So uh, let's pray. God, we just thank you for so many things that we can celebrate. God, you at work in our lives, and... uh, God, this season of hope that uh, we begin to draw our hearts again to you and and remembering your coming, remembering the reason uh, for your arrival. And uh, we just ask that you be with us in this time as we dig into your word, God, that you would reveal yourselves to us. Uh, And I thank you that that you don't really need me here, uh, but you have the ability to preach uh, 150 different sermons today. So we ask that your spirit do that this morning uh, in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in Luke chapter 19, and uh, as we begin there, you can scroll there in your phone, turn there in your Bible. Uh, It'll probably also pop up up here. Luke 19 verse 28 starts, and when he had said these things. Now, We have to pause right there because we've been thematically jumping around Luke a little bit, and so we've been in chapter 21, 20, 18, and people are like, what is happening here? And uh, thematically, we've been working through that, but we come to this passage right here very intentionally because we are going to be putting a bow on Luke for a number of weeks to jump into the Christmas season, and it's a perfect passage uh, for us to do that. But what he has been talking about was about preparing his disciples for what was going to come. Now, his disciples were the 12 that were following him. They were also the dozens. There was people that were following Jesus uh, all over the countryside, not just the 12 apostles that we think of. There was, in fact, hundreds at times that were following him, and then crowds of thousands uh, that he would show up and teach in any given location that weren't often traveling with him. So he was reminding them of these things that were about to take place. He's Entering into the last week of his life here on earth. Uh, Well, the first time, anyway, spoiler alert, uh, he comes back. But uh, he's preparing them, and and he's teaching them the things that they should really be focused on, saying that I'm going to be away. He's talking about the distant future, but he's also talking about a pretty immediate future, both at the same time, I'm going to be away from you for a time, and I'm giving you, I'm going to give you a gospel, a good news that I want you to spread to others. I want you to include everybody into this message of good news. You are going to be bringing the kingdom come in my absence with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so he is giving them marching orders in these last days, and we also along with them should pay attention, continuing. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and when he drew near to Bethpage at Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, uh, and when entering you will find a colt tied. 
on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, the owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And he said to them, the Lord has need of it, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on top of it. Now, without a full understanding contextually and uh, within their culture of what's happening, this looks like a strange, strange occurrence. You know, like you're out in your garage and uh, with a buddy, you're talking about stuff and somebody walks up to your, you know, your, your Ford GT Shelby edition, right? Starts opening the door. You're like, dude, what are you doing? Right? No, nobody's like, you just let people use your car. All right, well, and so he's like, what's happening? And they're, well, the Lord has need of it. Oh, okay, the Lord has need of it. And so we look at this and we're like, what is happening here? What do you mean he just says a passing statement like that? Because we don't totally understand the cultural setting of what's taking place. Let's continue and we'll circle back around to this sod. And they brought it to Jesus uh, and throwing cloaks on it, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already along the way, um, down to Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. So this is a whole multitude, not just the dozen, not just the dozens, not just the hundred, but thousands who were gathered at this place at this time rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So this is a familiar scene to many of us, possibly. Mike Clary talked about it last week. Jesus riding in as a king would triumphantly into a city, but he doesn't do it in a typical manner. And what's happening here is his followers knew what was coming. Finally, it's about time he's coming in to power. He knew that they knew that he was going to overthrow Rome and this juggernaut that was Rome would only fall by the sword. But Jesus knew that the kingdom would be coming in a different manner. Instead of riding in on a noble white steed, he rides in on a humble colt, bringing with it the symbolism of riding in with peace. The disciples are thinking war, and here Jesus comes in declaring peace. This time, anyway. He's going to come back on a war horse uh, one day. But blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. All of the people cried out and praised. I find it interesting that entering the last week of Jesus' ministry, this praise and worship is so related to the very beginning, to the night that Jesus was born when the angels came in Luke 2 records that they sang glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
And this scene at the triumphal entry of him riding in in peace points us back to the very night that he was born, but it points back so much further than that. In fact, you would have to rewind some 550 years to the prophet Zechariah, who in chapter 9, verse 9, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. A prophecy that the Israelites would have been well aware of. And so it's in this context when the disciples say, the Lord needs it, that these believers, I'm thinking, uh, being led by the Holy Spirit must have said, oh, oh. That's happening in my imagination. They handed over the donkey, and then they followed down to see and be a part of this scene of the king finally riding in. But the Pharisees jump in. When they heard these words, it was blasphemous for them to somebody to just accept them. Because in accepting them, these words painted Jesus as God himself, the Lord incarnate, and the Pharisees would not stand for this. And so Jesus, knowing that this in fact was true and it was not a blasphemous act, says, you think this is something. What if I did tell them to be quiet? You would see the stones themselves begin to shout and cry out. See, whether it was the people or the rocks, God's creation was made to praise and worship him. And we cry out, like this morning, I hope that you were joining me in praise and adoration and worshiping our Savior and the thought of his coming as we are beginning to be reminded of this this Christmas season. Sometimes we cry out with questions and request sometimes we cry out in anger and confusion and guess what they're all okay they're all just fine the my god is big enough to handle each and every one of those things as long as you keep seeking him as long as we keep moving towards him with our worship with our questions with our anger and if you think that this maybe isn't okay just open up the psalms those guys are, are like, God, you are amazing and you are wonderful. God, what the heck are you doing? Like in the very next verse, it's Selah. Uh, it's, uh, one of those I, I like very much. But chapter 19, verse 41, let's continue. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know that the time of your visitation. And so he's seeing even moments after the masses gathered around him and are singing glory and praises that they had missed the point. They didn't get that Jesus was here to bring peace to the whole world and not war just on Rome. You want to talk about a glimpse into the heart of Jesus? Jesus weeping over a city whose namesake means the city of peace who knew no peace. 
And they could have. Now, war was coming on a human front, but they could have known peace spiritually and internally, but they missed it. And Jesus weeps for this city. Again, people had gathered from all over the region for this celebration. And so this was representative of all of Israel, not just the people within this town, but all of Israel, so many who were missing out on it. Peace personified had just entered the city, but the inhabitants wanted war. The people wanted to overthrow Rome. The religious leaders wanted somebody to fit their definition of what the Savior should look like, and so they were plotting to kill Jesus. His own disciples wanted him to pick up a sword and fight, but Jesus had so many other plans for his people. They wanted what they wanted, but Jesus had a different plan. I wonder if we have the heart of Jesus. Do we feel, do we weep for a city that doesn't know him? For a people, for a nation that's separated from the peace that maybe we have when we're in a relationship with him. That's why we're doing, the part of why we're doing this prayer walk. That we could be out in our community saying, God, give us your eyes. God, give us your heart. God, guide our hands and our feet to be about the things that you want us to be about. And I hope you continue to be committed to that. The way you do it is on your way out, look at the map that's on this wall in the lobby and find a, a, a couple of streets that aren't marked in red. They haven't been prayed for yet. And then go this week and pray for that area. And it's not so much about changing the area, it's so much about changing our hearts that we, as we have a glimpse into the heart of Jesus and how he felt for his people, that we would be softened, that we would be molded into what he wants for us, that we would be prepared to be about the work that he has for us. I'm going to shoot straight with you. I don't in and of myself on my own have this kind of a heart for people. I have to pray for it. I have to be reminded of what God is about so that I can reorient my heart. God, give me your heart for the lost. So maybe you have more of a sensitivity to it naturally. And for you, uh, uh, great. I'm, God that God, I'm glad that God has already placed that inside of you. And I know some of your stories. Some of the rest of us, maybe you relate to me, that I don't think about it all that much. And all the more do I need to pray, God, help me to see this world the way that you see the world. How selfish of it of us to keep it to ourselves. According to the Barna Research Group, there's a growing number of Bible-believing Christians who think it is wrong to share their faith with somebody else. Barna Research Group, this, this group that, that searches uh, America and does all kinds of polls, and they're finding there's a growing number of Bible-believing Christians who think it's the wrong thing to share their faith with somebody else, like we're pushing it on them. Now, I'm not saying that we should be pushy by any stretch. And I kind of want you to sit in that for a moment and, and, and feel that, you know? Like, how do you feel about that? How do you relate to that? Is that you? I mean, is there some part of you that's like, yeah, you know what? There's a lot of different beliefs. We have to respect other people's beliefs, and I'm all for that. We absolutely do have to respect other people's beliefs, and yet if we have the truth, do we have an obligation to share that? And then I want you to, as you feel that, I want you to take just a second, and I want you to think about uh, November, okay? 
How did your actions in November back up your feelings right now? You don't have to admit to anybody else the discrepancy between how, oh, I can't believe that people feel like they shouldn't feel their faith or share their faith with anybody, although I didn't do anything last month. You don't have to share that with anybody. But let's be honest with ourselves before we move on. Jeremiah 29.7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. See, the context of Jeremiah 29 is this. Jeremiah uh, is, is in a time that, that in, in Babylonian captivity where many had been carried off into captivity. The elite were carried off. Okay, the officials were carried off. The craftsmen were carried off. It says the eunuchs, and make a note of this. We don't talk a whole lot about eunuchs, and we will more. Uh, is they were carried off, and there's going to be an interesting connection to this next week, so stay tuned. The craftsmen, the metal workers, Daniel and the three, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they are carried off into Babylonian captivity, not quite the masses. And in Jeremiah 29, we have a number of verses that may be familiar to you. Let me start with verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Probably you've seen that verse on a mug or a pillow uh, or, or a graduation card, right? Yeah, we love that verse. I'm going to embroider that on something. I don't know what. I love that verse. But you know what? We don't necessarily know the context of which it sits in. Verse 12, he goes on, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. And you will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. The talks of one day that he is going to restore them to their place, and we love that verse too. Yeah, bring us back. Bring us back together into the glory that we once had, whatever that means means for us in contrast to Jeremiah 29, and there's a promise attached to this too, but it comes before it in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Yes, maybe we put it in a grad card and we're wishing that they go off because God has a plan for you. And guess what? It will probably happen after 70 years of hardship because it's going to be a tough road. And I tell you what, your first six months in college are going to be some of the most mind-bending experiences of your life. And it only gets worse and more difficult from there. Add that to the card next time. Okay, because that's the truth of life and what Jesus, what God is talking about in these verses. And then after the 70 years, you will be drawn to me and you will pray to me and you will seek me with every part of your being because of the depths and the darkness that you've experienced. And then I will hear you and I will answer you and I will restore you. That's good stuff. But it comes with hardship. It comes with pain. 
I think too often we're guilty of wanting the verse 11 stuff, but we forget about the verse 7 stuff. We ignore the verse 12 through 14 stuff, and we tell God that we don't want it according to the verse 10 stuff. We want it now. And God says, that's nice. And the disciples, as he's riding in, said, I've got a plan. Let's take this place by force. Look at the army that we have amassed. They're ready to pick up their sword. And Jesus says, that's nice, but I come in peace. And I've come for a time that there's going to be hardship. But in that hardship, in those moments that the prayer isn't answered the way that you think it's going to be answered, I am going to be at work. Verse 45, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. I'm not going to lie, I love these scenes. Some people would say that Jesus is a nice guy, and he was no nice guy. He was good, he was right but he was not nice. And I love the scene even more so in John chapter 2. It says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip out of cords. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers. And overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Much in the same way that the praises of the people at his triumphal entry here in chapter 19 is a bookend, and there's another bookend with the glory of God, the angels singing. It's at the beginning, it's at the end. Also here, Jesus clears the temple at the end, but there's a picture in John of him clearing the temple at the beginning of his ministry as well, refocusing his people, saying, my place should be a place of prayer. Don't make it a den of robbers. And in ministry circles, we like to call this righteous indignation. Say it after me. Righteous indignation. One more time. Righteous indignation. Jesus was pissed. He walked into his house and said, what is going on in here? And he tore it upside down. And in one of the cases, he went away and he took a cord and he made a whip out of it so that he could get the job done right. He didn't react. He responded to what was happening. He didn't lose his cool. He was very cool and calculated and said, this cannot be saying to them, as it is written, my house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Mike Clary talked about this a little bit last week as well, how they were charging rates up to 50% on top to exchange money and to make change for, uh, from their own coinage into temple coinage so that they could give their offerings, that they were charging uh, up to 15 times the rate for sacrificial animals if they hadn't brought their own lining their own pockets with the proceeds. And it's plain to see why this made Jesus so mad. It's easy for us to hop on board and say, yeah, Jesus, you get them. You show them what's up. 
until we sit back and we look at how this might be pointed back at us. You see, the clearing of the temple wasn't simply about the money changers and the greed of the profiting priests, but I think it was also about the laziness of the people who didn't prepare well to come. They just showed up. And they were willing to pay the extra price for admission, you know? Like you go to an amusement park, you're spending eight bucks for a Coke. You're like, well, we're at an amusement park. I guess that's what we do. But had they prepared well, had they brought uh, an animal of their own, they wouldn't have had to pay those rates. And yet, that would have been difficult. That would have been inconvenient for them. And so I think that it wasn't just about the money changers and about the priests, but about the people as well. And I wonder how that relates to us. See, those who have chosen to enter the covenant of membership with Florence Christian Church have committed to giving of their time, their treasures, and their talents. We don't tell you how much of your treasure. We don't tell you how much of your time. We don't tell you when to use your talents. It's not about that. That's between you and God. But I think sometimes we may be tempted to throw a few extra bucks in the plate so we don't have to show up and work and be a part of the body at times. Eh. A few more bucks will make up for me not investing or being in a community group or serving the body somewhere. Eh. Paying the exchange rate for an overpriced lamb is well worth it so that we didn't have the inconvenience of dragging one of our lambs all the way from home. Plus, that lamb's quite a producer at home. We'd really miss it. See, part of the point of the sacrifice was that it cost the people something. Not just financial, but was something dear to their lives. Part of the point of this was that cost that we feel it. And Jesus clears the scene because this place was always supposed to be a place of prayer, a house of prayer. And it's on this thought that I want to close. We're going to bring the band up. As we think of this house of prayer, which is really about communication, two-way communicating with God, that that was what was supposed to take place there. And yet, what did Jesus just say? There's going to come a time where this temple is torn down. You know Why? Because the temple was always only supposed to be temporary because he was going to move his presence from the temple into his people. And we are to be a people of prayer. We now are the house of prayer. Of being in communication with God, of pouring out our hearts to him, whether it be worship or confusion, or question, or anger, and then listening for the answer. Listening to his leading, waiting on his timing and on his plan. It's not fun, it's not easy, but we're supposed to be a people of prayer. And I wonder as, as we look at, at this text and, and we think about how it points back to us, what does Jesus want to tear out of our lives? What would he walk in and want to make a whip and rip it upside down and throw it out the door? See, when we're in communication with him, when we're asking God, seek me and know me, show me the ways that are not aligned with you. I think of Psalm 139, I think that's what it is. You know, seek me and know me, know my ways and clear out the stuff that isn't aligned with you. And then we're looking to follow him in that, that's what this moment of communion is about. 
that, that we can come to him understanding that he has fulfilled everything that needed to take place for us to be in a relationship with him, that we have fallen short, but he took care of it on the cross. His body that was broken for us is represented in this cracker. His blood that was spilled for us, represented by the juice that is also in this cup. You see, we are his house. We are the place that God resides. We are the place of communication that God not only wants to speak to us, but God wants to speak through us. See, we're here together in his presence, in the presence of each other. And we're gathered here, but we're about to be scattered into this town. And as you're scattered, pray. God, align my heart. Help me to know what I need to get right with you and help me to know how I can live for you today. Whether you're at a restaurant, when you enter your neighborhood, if you have a long drive home this week, pray that stretch. If you drive 101, if you drive roadie, pray that stretch to and from. God, give me your heart. God, give me your eyes. Help me to know where you are leading me. I want to take this time of communion as we sing, as we worship. To, to consider those things. God, what in my life do you want to clear out? God, what in my life can I give over to you? And as you do that, as you prayerfully take this time in communication with him, then take of the elements as a reminder that he has covered you. He has paid the price that you can be in a relationship with him, that you can be in a relationship eternally, but he brought, he came to bring peace to this place as well. It's a place of chaos, but you can have peace within it when we know the one, the Prince of Peace. Amen.